Well, hello again. Uh, it's Peter Cowley here. We're here for another podcast, this time with a friend, a close friend that I uh, met about five years ago, Simon Thorpe, who's done some tremendous stuff in our space. Simon, can you give us a bit about your background? Yes, Peter, delighted to be here. Really good to talk to you uh, on this uh, subject, which you know I uh, enjoy talking about. Yes, I started as, uh, a, originally I started as, uh, as an economics uh, graduate, studied accountancy, which I was uh, persuaded was a good idea. I found it awfully boring at the time, but it turned out to be a very useful thing. Uh, and then I spent 22 years in the city uh, working with companies from all over the world, uh, researching companies. Always been interested in the way that management teams would uh, steer companies. And uh, of course, that led me to my current career, which is following microcaps and uh, researching and investing in angel, uh, making angel investments. And we've, I noticed from my inbox, we met five years ago. We've got to know each other very well since then. But I think you'd only been in angel investing for a few years before that. Yes, that's right. I mean, I, I suppose my first angel investment was probably at least 20 years ago. So I was very familiar with the concept of investing in early stage companies. But I've seriously been investing as a, as a regular investor, making six or eight investments a year since 2009. Okay, and um, our audience is both angel investors and entrepreneurs. Why did you decide to become an angel investor and what led you to be so active? Yeah, it's a great question, Peter, because I, I've always thought about being an entrepreneur myself and in a way I am. My parents were both entrepreneurs. When I was 16, I was an entrepreneur because I used to be, in the, in the days before the digital worlds, I used to go to auctions, bid, bid, for, uh, bid for lots and then resell them, break them up and resell them. It was sort of early stage eBay, I suppose. Uh, so I sort of had that in my blood. I sort of always wanted to run my own business. And in a, in a way, I am running my own business now because I run a business investing in other people's businesses. But actually, I enjoy really helping young people and working with young people and seeing them grow, seeing their businesses grow, being some part of their journey from startup to hopefully mature company. And as I've said before on podcasts, I actually stumbled into angel investing. It sounds like you did some planning. Well, I did a bit of planning. I mean, I did sort of stumble in the sense that I, I did have a specific idea of my own, which I then found, um, well, I actually then found the SwiftKey guys, and, uh, and they were doing it much better than I could ever do it. So I decided it would be much better if I invested in their business and back them than trying to do it myself. Uh, and that was about 2009 or 8? Yes, two, that, that was actually 2010. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you, um, we'll talk about some of your other journeys, possibly the Swift Key later on, but uh, you specifically aim to invest in the digital economy. Now, I have my own view about what that is. What's your view? Yes. So it's a great question. The digital economy is, for me, a very important starting point because it's growing at roughly three times the economy as a whole, so 6% per annum growth as opposed to 1.5% to 2% in the economy. And for me, the digital description is quite wide. But I use that as an umbrella term for really technology companies, mainly being software, hardware. I tend to look at the main themes, the themes that we all know and love, Internet of Things, Big Data, Data Security, Artificial Intelligence, Machine Learning. I mean, these are all the terms that are banded around. They're the themes, but of course, within that, you've got to look very closely at the companies that are genuinely able to exploit some of those themes. Which leads to two questions. One, do you do a life sciences? Because it could be argued that's digital. And secondly, um, do you do anything that's non-digital economy? Yes, so two questions there. Then the first one, absolutely, I do look at the healthcare sector because it's a massive market, it's a massive opportunity We've already only just started actually digitising healthcare. But, there's a big but, 
you do need to know something about it. And I think it is a specialist sector. And so I've done one or two things, but I, if I do invest in that sector, I will usually be investing alongside somebody who knows far more about the sector than I do. Second question really was, um, was around, do I need to do anything non-digital? Uh, yes, I have done, but by and large, there's been a pretty strong trend that the non-digital plays have not worked. So I've got, I think, three of my companies that have disappeared over the last few years are non, non-digital. Okay, and interesting that. Can we just explore that slightly further? Mm. Is this because you think really that growth from non-digital is likely to be less or, or, and or have you picked the wrong investments? Well, it might be a combination of both, of course. Uh, I've certainly, with hindsight, picked the wrong investments, <laughs> made the wrong investments. That, <laughs> that's clear. But I think, it, it, I think many things have happened. If I think about specific examples of uh, non-digital businesses I've backed, one, uh, the management team clearly wasn't up to executing on the plan they had. Another, another one, they had a great product but they weren't able to get the channels to market right. And I think you face a tougher, a tougher uh, position as an investor in those type of businesses because the, the natural underlying growth isn't actually there. So it, it's harder, it's much harder. Uh, there are three areas I think you're really interested in. We'll cover them one by one. STEM, women entrepreneurs, and particularly the northwest of England. So let's talk about yes. STEM. Can you explain what STEM stands for yes. in case people don't know? Yeah, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I think it's, some people call it STEAM because they, they think that you need to include art. Well, of course we need to be artistic as well. Art? Yes, oh, I've art, never heard that. Art, STEAM, <laughs> yes. uh, including art. And, but I think they missed the point. The problem in the UK, for example, and many other countries, particularly in the UK, we've actually got lots of people who are good art, at art. We've got lots of good at the people that are good at the creative industries. We're very good at that. But we've got to get the balance more towards STEM, which is why STEM is important. And it's particularly important in the UK when you look at the girls in schools, because very few girls in schools are doing STEM subjects. In fact, I think there's a well-known stat that only 50% of A-level physics classes do not have a single girl in them. Uh, and we also know that if you look at entrepreneurs, I think it's 31% of, of women have a STEM degree and 67% of men have a STEM degree. And that includes all entrepreneurs of fashion, brand? It, that would be yeah. all entrepreneurs, yeah, okay. yes. But, but you know, there's, there's a significant disadvantage for women in later life in these industries if you don't start off with the right education. So it's really important to get more girls doing STEM, STEM subjects at school. And why do you think, this is a deep question possibly, why do you think that is not happening? Why do you think that girls are not interested in STEM? I don't think it's the girls aren't interested. I think it's schools and parents are not encouraging girls to think that these subjects are relevant. So I do a lot of work experience for students that are generally 15 to 16. They come for the you know, pre the pre the summer holiday, and uh, we have quite a lot of difficulty getting enough girls to come along. When they do, they get to the end of the week and they say, "I didn't realise that technology was relevant to me, but now I understand it is. So now I'm going to put it on my." list of things that I might do in the future. You know, they may not become a they may not become a coding expert, but but actually at least they've thought at least it's a step in the right direction. And you don't do that much life sciences or healthcare. Women are much more prevalent in my view in life sciences. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think they are and that's I think a historic thing because um, women have been much more likely to go into the medical profession profession either as, as doctors, surgeons, nurses, etc because there's been that slightly more of a feminine caring um, 
culture, if you like. So yes, that's absolutely right. There are many more in that industry. And what proportion of your investments do you think, off the top of your head, uh, to have one or more female founder? So uh, I have got a portfolio of 30 companies at the moment, and uh, roughly a third, 10, have got a female founder or, or two female founders. Uh, so most of my companies will tend to have two founders. Most of them have two female or two male founders, as it happens. Not many have one female, one male. And most of those, of course, are STEM and, or, or, or engineering, te- digital economy. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, yes, they are. And, and business to business? Most of them are business to business. One or two B2C, business to consumer, but generally business to business, yes. yes. So that's really covered STEM and women. What about, I, I struggle, I come from Yorkshire. I know you <laughs> come from, I think you come from down south, but you went north for your university yeah. course. Can we talk about, um, generally together, why we're concentrate so much is concentrated in the southeast, and what we should be doing, and what you are doing more than I'm doing, in order to uh, support entrepreneurialism elsewhere in the country. Yes, I, th- I think um, it's a really interesting question, Peter, because much of the UK is very much focused on London, and that's because London has become a international financial centre, and because it's international, it's global, it's created wealth from the UK from that global business. And of course, it's the cluster effect. Much business in the southeast has gathered around London. Then you've, of course, got the, the academic excellence, which is, uh, of course, Cambridge, Oxford, some of the other major cities like Bristol, like Manchester. But much of the, uh, of the angel investment scene, as we know, roughly 65 70%, is really around the Golden Triangle. So that's Cambridge, London and Oxford. So it is very concentrated. And I think many people have tried to work out how do we actually make the North much more involved, much more of a material player in this in, in, the, in the digital world in, in, in the UK. Now, in fact, Manchester, I've just joined the Manchester Tech Trust, uh, which is aimed at, it's a charity, it's aimed at actually trying to, to uh, develop the technology businesses in, in the North, particularly around Manchester. But the reality is you've got four or five very major cities in the North they're all trying to build their digital presence. And Manchester's already got a strong digital presence. It's already very, very strong in creative industries. The BBC moved up there many years ago, got lots of flack at the time, but actually it's a very wise move to do that. And so I think uh, there's going to be a lot more focus on actually building digital businesses. There's the Graphene Institute being set up around the university. And the Manchester Tech Trust is thinking very hard about how it can develop that, develop more material sciences on that big site just south of, of the city. So I think there's, there's lots of opportunity there, but we need to work quite hard at developing those cities and uh, putting investment in around the sorts of businesses that will grow in the digital economy. Thank you, Sam. And let's now go back to angel investing and some successes and one or two failures. The SwiftKey you mentioned a lot. I think you were very close to the founders. Can we just talk a little bit about that journey where angels got involved, both in terms of capital and assistance the sort of grey haired or that's an unfair term but certainly the experienced assistance well I've got plenty of grey hair (laughs) (laughs) not as much as me you've got more (laughs) hair than me as well Swiftkey's a good example Um, I mean mean, just to sort of set the context a bit uh, I've had I've been fortunate enough to have five exits of which Swiftkey was one I've also had five companies that have failed fortunately you should expect that the 
the successes should very significantly outweigh the losses that you make from the failures. And the failures generally occur before the successes do. And the failures do, that's right. I mean, the worst failures are the companies that drag on for years and years and years. Uh, that's, not a, that's not a good outcome for anybody, certainly not the entrepreneurs. Uh, so I think being honest with the entrepreneurs is always very important. But I think on the successes, SwiftKey is a good example because it's, um, it's a very clear journey of what you should expect to see with UK companies uh, going from literally startup, because uh, with John Reynolds and Ben Medlock, the two founders, they went from two people in 2008. They had an Innovate UK grant. They brought angels in, including me, very early on. They had a couple of angel rounds. They then brought in Octopus as a, as a VC in the UK, and then they brought in Index and Axel from the US. Uh, together with Octopus again. So it was it was a clear journey of a sequence of funding rounds. And where the, each round was a, a higher share price than the A very before. significant rise in value each right. time with demonstrable commercial transaction each, uh, attraction each time. So you know, that, that's obviously very important. It's very easy when it happens like that. But of course, exactly. as we that's know, rare. <laughs> it's relatively rare. Yeah. Uh, relatively rare. Uh, the other the other feature I think of of, of that um, story was that the the company went from those two people to 160 people in a quite a short space of time, but the two founders were very good at hiring good people around them, and they hired a very talented engineering team, and by the time the company was approached for acquisition, it had a very very good team of people. And it would, became an artificial intelligence play as opposed to what it started off with as purely a predictive text for touchscreen devices. So the, the story had widened. Uh, it, was, it, it was seen as being a, a company that could do many more things than it started doing. And would you regard that as a pivot? Or was this, you know, was it, pl- well, how much planning went into re- not reinventing themselves? Maybe AI became into the into the vocabulary while they were already doing machine learning. Yeah. Well, it didn't, it didn't have a pivot in the, in, the accept, in the way that we would view a pivot. But what it did do was it realised early on that it needed to be a business-to-business business, but it cleverly worked out that in order to, uh, to go to knock on the door of Samsung in Korea, it needed to have some commercial transac- uh, tra- traction. And so it, it actually went and created a B2C business-to-consumer app, and it sold that app, and the app was so successful that then they were able to go and knock on the door of Samsung and say, look, we've already got this commercial traction, and actually, look, you should talk to us. And, of course, they did, and then they were able to negotiate B2B contracts. So that wasn't a pivot. It was quite a clever strategy to get to where they wanted to get to. But it was sold for strategic reasons to a large extent to Microsoft. Or yes, it was. It was sold. It was exactly sold for strategic reasons. And and by then, of course, the big the big players like Microsoft, Google, Apple, etc., were all looking because, as we know, you know, the last two years, artificial intelligence, AI, has been one of the buzzwords. And of course, all the major players were looking to get into that space, and they were looking to hire the most talented people in the UK. And of course, SwiftKey had 160 very talented people, many of whom, at least a hundred of which, were engineers. Uh, I, I found out from one of my, in fact, Alan, who's helping me run this project, the term FOMO, fear of missing out. I remember him telling me about this only a few years ago when I was into my 50s. I looked carefully at investing in SwiftKey along with another group of angels and we decided against it. And this was a combination of deciding that a keyboard is not going to grow 
you know, which clearly it, the, the exit was a lot to do with the team and the, and the strategy and the AI that they've been doing. And, and secondly, that um, we had a lot of other things on our plate and we didn't get around to making, <laughs> the consummating the marriage and, in, and buying some shares. But uh, as an angel, one cannot do that. One can't live on regret. No, I mean, you, you, absolutely right. You, you've got to look forward, not look backwards. If you do look backwards, then you've got to say, well, what did I learn from, from not making that decision? But you have to make decisions. And uh, the worst decision is making no decision. <laughs> exactly, yes. Let's talk about failures, because this, I mean, many, as we know, you, you've been quite lucky, you've had about a, a match of failures and successes. I, my failures outweigh my successes by about two to one. Shall we talk about why, we don't need to be too specific, but why some of the businesses you've invested in have failed? So, it, it's, it's a, uh, there are obviously a range of different reasons, and, but if I think about the main reasons, uh, sometimes it's purely timing. Timing is a bigger factor than many people think, both in terms of successes and failures. Um, but I've seen, and I've got one or two companies in my portfolio now, that I still think are too early for the market. Um, I think they'll get there, but they're too early. And, and, and so they should have probably been started five years later than they And of course, started. if that's the case, they're, they're not producing profit either, I suspect. So they're reliant 100% on equity then, aren't they? They are reliant, absolutely, 100% And the patience on and the availability of money, whether it's from angels or from VCs, etc. So timing's important. Often, often it, it will be the management team is not able to execute on the vision they had at the beginning. And that may be because they're great at creating the idea, but they're not good at hiring good people around them. They're not good at growing the business. They're not good at carrying people with them to, to, to buy into their vision. So that can, be, that can be a very significant issue. Sometimes it can be because uh, they don't have the right balance of skills within the, within the core team. And the, I think I'm very much like you, Peter, that we tend to like to back two founders uh, starting a business. It's pretty a lonely place being an entrepreneur, as two of you. But if you're only on, if you're on your own, it's a very lonely place. And if there are four of you, it's often too many, and you start with too diluted an equity, and then by the time you've taken in new money, you, you get diluted down too quickly. So two founders is ideal, and ideally those two founders are highly complementary. So one will be technical, and one will be commercial. That, that's that's, that's very unfortunately difficult. rare in Cambridge to get that. It is, but that's that's what happened with SwiftKey. That's yeah. what happened with uh, Center Stage, another software business. And um, that is the ideal model. Now, of course, that's the ideal model. It doesn't always happen. doesn't mean you can't make it work in other ways. People do make it work in other ways. But, but certainly that, those complementary skills are key. And when you don't have those complementary skills, that can mean that the founders fall out and, 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 and they can't keep going and executing the strategy. So I think those would be some of the main reasons why I've, I've seen failure. The other thing would be product market fit. Uh, so quite often the founders don't have a a great idea or as good an idea of the marketplace that they're in and uh, so that that can be an issue and actually finally I think another another issue is 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 around the size of the market so sometimes uh, the market just isn't big enough it's a great idea great piece of technology but the market's just not big enough. So these failures um, would it be fair to say that in all cases or some cases the founders would would have continued if investment had been available or do you think that one or more of those, the founders, has sort of got to the end of, of, the, of their road with that particular investment? Oh, sorry, that particular startup. 
Yeah, I, I think it's been a mix, actually. My, my experience has been a mix. So some have very definitely realised themselves that the business model they're pursuing isn't going to work. And they've said, hands up, we're going to go no further. Uh, but pivot, there's always the possibility. And, and then, but then you get the next stage where actually, if you're a, an experienced investor, you should be saying, well, have we together considered all the possible pivots? And I've been through at least two of those exercises where we've actually sat down, spent two hours around a whiteboard and said, okay, what could we do? Um, and, and we've either concluded there is a sensible pivot, in which case we've carried on and we've attracted new investment, or actually, no, there's no sensible pivot at all, we're going to close the company. Uh, and that, that's very much, I think, driven by the founders' own aspirations. And I think it's good when founders do say, that's enough's enough. I'm not going to go out and raise more money from, from investors because I really don't buy into, into the vision that we've got. It's not fair to do that. Yes, we've got, already got set up a couple of podcasts to be recorded uh, from founders who have uh, had businesses that have failed. Be very interested to see what they say. Yeah. yeah. This podcast is about teaching angels and entrepreneurs uh, how to work together. Can you come up with some things that you'd know? And I, I often give lectures and talks nowadays of, mm. which are entitled uh, What I'd Wish I'd Known 10 Years Ago. Can you give me an idea of what if you know roll the clock back not the 20 years we're talking about where you first start but say 10 years ago what have you learned on your journey lots of things obviously probably the the first the probably the most important point is you've got to have a longer time horizon than you think so the reality is every company comes along and says we're planning an exit in three to five years you know it always used to be three years it seems to be three to five years now uh, the reality is that a, a really good business will probably take seven to ten years. I say eight to twelve years when I talk to people. Yeah. They are eight to twelve. Mm. I wouldn't disagree with that. So, yeah. first thing, the time frame is longer than you think. So you need to plan for that. The second thing is that you think many people come along and they invest in their a company and they think that's it. Um, but of course, you've got to expect three or four or five or six more rounds. 17 in one case. Not mine, but I've seen the slide with 17. I've had as many as 17. <laughs> but I've got a few with uh, five or six rounds. And, uh, and when you look at those companies, you know, it, so right at the beginning, if you'd said to me, do I want to invest in this company when I'm going to have to invest every year for six years? I think I'd probably take a different view to the view I took at the time. However, if I'm looking at it today... I'm, I'm looking at the company and I'm saying, actually, is it still doing what it said it was going to do at the beginning? Do I still think the team are as good as I thought at the beginning? Yes. Well, why wouldn't I continue to back them? And that's how you need to look at it. You've got to look at it today. You've got to look at it as it is now rather than looking back six years. But that's the second thing you've got to learn is that you must plan ahead for, for second, third, fourth rounds. And, yeah, and you, I mean, uh, I say that you should at least have as much, three times the initial investment available, because you'll need to invest again, whether that's because of something not working, which is mostly the case, or because of great growth potential. Would yeah. you say three times? Two roughly, times, four, yeah. roughly three times. So allocate, if you're going to invest 20k to start with, or 2k even, then allocate three times that. Allocate Against three times. that investment. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, some people are hoping they'll ha they'll crystallise some other exits and therefore they'll have that liquidity coming back and therefore they'll be able to use that money. But of course, the nature of this business is it's quite lumpy. 
it's a bit like London buses. <laughs> Nothing happens for years, and then they all come at once. Well, then they, for you, you had your four exits in one in one I, twelve I month have, period. I did have four exits yeah. in 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 one twelve month period, and um, there's been a gap now for a year. Um, but but I've got a couple of things up my sleeve, so uh, it shouldn't be too long. Oh really? Okay. Oh well, <laughs> we'll talk about that off mic. I think. <laughs> so what else? This is patience. Obviously, what he's describing is patience. It takes longer than you think. You've got to be patient. You shouldn't be angel investing unless you can learn, understand that patience yep. is so important. Yeah, that and that's right. And hence the whole this uh, theme of patient capital. Mm. That's exactly why it's called that. Um, you mentioned team size, you know, tech, other other criteria that you've developed over the last ten years. Well, I I used, and this is something I I probably developed from my old uh, research um, uh, heritage, if you like, which is which I have a research template. I call it a research template, but I mean it's my own way of doing my due diligence, and uh, that is all the usual things. You know, researching who the competition are, researching the business model, researching the people. Um, and so on, uh, doing the technology due diligence, the commercial due diligence, all, all those good things. So I have my own template of looking at that, and I use various proprietary tools to to pick up the information and, and make sure you've done your done your homework. Let's talk about tips you can give to entrepreneurs. So the real entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, how can you, as a very sophisticated, experienced angel, help the entrepreneur approach us angels and work with us? Yeah, so it, it, it's a key question. The first thing is that entrepreneurs actually need to be able to listen and they need to absorb information quickly. They're not going to take every piece of advice, obviously, but they need to work out very quickly who are the people they can go to, who do they trust, who can they go to for good information, um, and good advice, uh, and how can they build the best possible team around them. The best entrepreneurs I see uh, recognise what they're good at and recognise what they're not good at and then go out and seek those skills in people and hire those people around them to find those skills that they're not good at. I'm also looking in entrepreneurs for, for people who are able to articulate very clearly what they, what they do. They need to be that great combination of technical. Um, they don't necessarily need to be the most academic person in the world. It does help if you're academic, but they don't necessarily need to be, but they do need to be intelligent. They do need to have strong emotional intelligence. Uh, and they need to be able to work with a wide range of people and be very flexible and adaptable. And of course, they need to be very well motivated. Right, let's talk about how you have been involved with entrepreneurial journeys. So this is from the point of investment to the point of exit, stroke, failure or ongoing. There are a number of roles one can take. One can be close to the fact, one can be distant, so just cash. I suspect neither of us do much of that. Close to the founder, board observer, board director. Let's take those Four. So, first of all, are there many of these investments where you don't have that much contact? Yeah, so sometimes I'll be what I call a passive investor, and that will largely be with the agreements at the outset that that's what I'm going to be. And it might be because I have uh, a very strong contact with somebody who's going to be a much more active investor and may sit on the board or may be an observer. It might be because I've invested through a fund, so I'm an investor in Cambridge Enterprise and that's been very helpful to actually discover the existence of some of these early stage companies. Sometimes I'll agree at the outset that I'm going to be a non-executive on the board and uh, you know, that, that can mean 
lots of meetings a year. It can mean two or three, four, maybe strategic meetings a year. So again, as you know, Peter, that that can that can vary. And then occasionally, I sit on as an observer to the board, representing an angel syndicate. And there, I'm pretty much acting as a as a director, but I don't have the the legal liability of being a director. And I sit in board meetings and I give input in just the same way that I would as a as a board director. But I'm always thinking. I'm always reporting back to a number of shareholders that I'm representing as the observer. I believe in Swiftkey, you were neither a board observer or director, were you? But you're still quite closely involved. Can you yes. just talk through that relationship? Yes, I mean, I think with Swiftkey, again, it was, I mean, it was another good example of where the angels had a reasonable sway all the way through the journey of the company because even by the time we got to the exit, the angels still held roughly a third of the company, the VCs held a third and the founders held a third, very roughly. I don't the exact numbers, but roughly. Whereas quite often angels, by that stage, are only much smaller proportion of the company. Um, and that, that was really, I think, one of the reasons why there was a good balanced outcome for all the different players and the interests of everybody were quite well aligned. But I was broadly a passive shareholder, but I was very close to a number of those uh, angels at the beginning, two of whom actually sat on the board. So... We, we had a good flow of information, we knew what was going on, we had a good relationship with the original founders and you know, I'd say probably my relationship with the founders is even stronger now because I've done more things with them since the exit than I had in the sort of couple of years before the exit. So what more does one have to give in terms of commitment and time moving up from friend of entrepreneurs through observer to to director well I think I think I think it's really important that I always try to think about what value could I add to a specific company and specific individuals and um, you, you work that out pretty quickly I think because you work out whether the chemistry is good between you and the founder or the founders uh, it may be one founder of the two that you help specifically either because the chemistry is better or, or just because I might be helping them on commercial or I might be helping them on some other aspect of business and it just depends uh, what that is. But I can, obviously the nature of my, my career has been I've, I've had quite a wide breadth of experience so I can actually potentially help companies on lots of different things. It may or may not be of value to them and so I'll try and work that out very early on where I can best help them. But I, I, what I don't want to be, I don't want to be over involved with companies for the sake of it. Yes, and I, I don't know whether you've done it, but because I'm des- desperately overcommitted, I've spent some time with my wonderful life coach, business life coach, on working out how much time I spend with these companies so I can juggle the 168 hours a week. Any idea what sort of commit- time commitment you... It'll vary, obviously, funding rounds, crises, hiring, etc. What sort of amount of time per year, do you think, or per month yeah. you would spend as a yeah. board, board director? Yeah. Well, as, as a board director, you are... Certainly, most most of these sort of earlier stage companies would be expecting six board meetings a year. Um, some do one a month, some Monthly, twelve yeah. a year. Yeah. Um, that's a bit more onerous. But but let's say it's 12, 12 meetings a year, then it's going to be at least twelve days a year. And if there's something material happening, then then there'll be more time for a for a period of time. The way I manage it is I have a list of my companies. I have a little check sheet checklist sheet. You know, have a Dropbox file, like we all do. We have some form of list. It, you know, it might be in Trello or it might be in Notes or it, you know, whatever technique works for you. But I, but I have something where I'll be looking regularly at my companies and saying, have I been in touch with this company recently? Have I heard from them? Am I up to date? Is there something going on? Have I seen something that might be relevant to them where I can add some value? 
perhaps it's on a competitor, perhaps it's on a, uh, a subscription which I have, which I know they don't have. Perhaps it's a contact that I can, I can introduce them to. That, that's a large part of the value I add, probably, is actually adding, yeah. helping introduce new contacts in different fields. You do that very well as well. I've, I've, I've known you for long enough that you do a better job of that than I do. Maybe because I'm more committed to, uh, you know, overcommitted in other sectors. But the the value you add is excellent, and it's sort of a, almost a paragon of what people should look up to in terms of uh, the invested investor. You are so invested in the investments you've made because of the time and effort. You are. I mean, there's various terms floating around like super angel, professional angel, full time angel. These, you know, you're clearly one of these people that uh, is very important to the early stage uh, ecosystem. Well, it's nice of you to say so, Peter. But you, you've got a long, much longer list of companies and many more Possibly strings to your many. bow. Possibly too many. <laughs> anyway, Simon, that's been really good. I've, re- I've learned a lot from you over the last five years. I've, I regard you as a, a close friend. Thank you very much for what you've, you've contributed today. I should just apologise to the listeners that Simon, we're working from an office here near Stansted Airport and a few planes have gone overhead, <laughs> if you've heard those, and I look forward to the next podcast we will be recording. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's been, uh, it's been great talking to you.